0: Matthew six verses one uh, and then verses five and six. So if you haven't already turned, there turn there. Um, while you're turning there, uh, we I've just got a question for you. How many of you, uh, by the show of hands, if you want to, you don't have to, uh, desire a deeper prayer life? Just want to you know, be able to pray better. Want to be able to do that? I certainly do. Uh, I know that it is something that is great to have, but it's something's difficult, right? Prayer, while super simple, at the same time can be super challenging. It's just hard to do at times. So over the next nine weeks that when Matt is away, that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be starting a new series this evening on prayer, and we're going to be figuring how do we pray, and we're going to be unpacking unpacking, uh, the Sermon of the Mount Mount section where Jesus talks about the Lord's Prayer, and just figuring this thing out called prayer. And our desire as leadership is that at the end of it, we will have a deep passion for it. We will be a people that are pursuing after it, and we will be known as a church that prays and prays a lot for the glory of Christ. Cool. So that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Verse 1 of chapter 6 goes as follows. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5 And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for this opportunity to gather together this evening. I know there's just a few of us, but the The word, your word says, when two or more gathered in your name, you will be here. And so, Lord, we are just blown away by the fact that you'd be willing to gather, uh, be with us as we gather together, that we could be in your presence. And and Father, we pray that you would stir up in us a deep desire for Christ this evening. And so as we talk about this idea of prayer, Lord, we we just want to become better at it. We want more of you. And so would you, Holy Spirit, just sanctify us and make us more into the image of Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, before we dive into the section on prayer, which is verses five to six, uh, we need to understand that verse one in chapter six is the foundational verse that follows. Uh, that the seventeen verses that follow afterward are built upon it is the lens in which we need to look at the first uh, eighteen verses in chapter six, and what Jesus is trying to unpack in these eighteen verses, as expressed in verse one, is how do we as Christians, live a life that is righteous? How do we live a life that is righteous that encapsulates every aspect? of our lives. And so he isn't in the section of chapter 6 just picking randomly three acts that Christians might do, but rather he's using them as examples that we might be able to glean from them principles that we can apply in those areas, but in other areas as well in our Christian walk. Does that make sense? Are you following me here? Great, I see some nodding, that's good, that's a good sign. And so what he's saying here is that we need to have a, a mindset a a vision, a desire to live a righteous life in every aspect of our lives. And so verse one tells us what that looks like. He says, we need to have the motive of glorifying God and not to be praised by men. The motive in the actions that we do for Christ, righteous living, things that might be righteous acts, needs to be that God gets the glory and not ourselves. Now, he says, The way we try to get the glory for ourselves is that we want to do it in front of others so that others might see us. But if you have been tracking with us through the Sermon on the Mount over the last um, couple of uh, years, really, as we've been doing it, chapter 5, you would maybe remember there's this uh, section um, in chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, that seems to contradict what Jesus just says here. It goes like this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that they may see your good works. Now, Jesus, what are you saying? Because in chapter 5, you're saying, shine your light, let people see your good works. But in chapter 6, you're saying, don't do good works so that people might see you. That just seems rather counterproductive. So what does Jesus mean here? What is he trying to say? Well, again, it's all about motive. In, in chapter six, uh, 6, verses 1, he's saying, don't let your good works be seen so that you might get praise that you might get the glory, that your kingdom might be built, that your reputation might grow. But in chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, it says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. And so while it might on the surface, when we just skim over, it seem contradictory. Actually, when we look at these two verses, they work hand in hand. Jesus is assuring and making sure that we do not pursue after our glory, but pursue after Christ. That is the fundamental motive that we need to have when doing every single act in Christian life. It must be for God's glory and not my own. And really the characteristic that we need to have when pursuing after such a motive is the, mo- uh, is the characteristic called meekness. You would maybe remember it when we went through the Beatitudes, that we need to be meek. Now, meekness gets a bit of a hard rap uh, nowadays. We have a skewed perspective of what it is. It's, we kind of think of meekness as being a pushover, uh, someone who is weak. Idea Carson's explains it like as being as a wet paper bag. I just think that's a beautiful imagery. That's how we feel. It's just like this, it's slimy, it's not cool, it falls apart. Um, that's kind of the feeling we get when we think of meekness. But that's not the biblical understanding of meekness whatsoever. A person who is a meek in scripture is someone who's bold, someone who's courageous, and someone who fights. But just not for themselves, but for the kingdom of God for his extension of his kingdom, for his name. And so we have our perspective, right? We are bold and courageous. We are the light of the world. We break into darkness. We make sure that we bring light into darkness. We make sure that we are the soul of the earth, that we stop the decay of the morals in the society. And that requires fighting, that requires effort, that requires boldness and courageous. But when it comes to our kingdom, our plans about us and our reputation, meh, we're not too too worried about it. That is the meekness that Jesus is going for here. And so in chapter 6 and verses 1 to 18, he's making sure and emphasizes it that we don't get our priorities mixed up. That we don't become a people when it comes to the kingdom who are idle and when it comes to the kingdom that we are inactive and lazy and don't care. So Nikki's challenge to go and, man, we need to make this children's ministry work. It's, it's a challenge because we don't want to be inactive here as a church. We want to be active in pursuing after our kids and making sure they know Christ. But at the same way, he wants to make sure that we don't just prioritize and be very active in building up our kingdoms. And he says, watch out for that. Be careful of that. And so in, in, in verses 5 to 6, what we see is that Jesus says it's possible for this to happen in prayer. That when we pray, it's possible to make it about us rather than about God. Now, anyone who has ever prayed in public knows that exact feeling, that you worried, how does how did, How did I sound? Do people like what I say? Did it make sense? It sometimes is the fear and the reason why some of you don't pray in public because you go, man, I'm too scared. What would people think of me? It's the, it's the worrying about what others think. It's when you pray and you hear an amen or mm-hmm, that's good. You get fired up because you know you're on the right track. Someone's understanding. You said something good. It's Jesus is saying prayer can be something in which we prioritize ourselves rather than God in and I was thinking this week as I was preparing for the sermon, and I was, I was wondering, how do we get to a point where we take something as so simple and, and good as prayer and make it about ourselves? And as I was thinking through it and wrestling through it, man, we've got to firstly understand that prayer is simply communication with God and being heard by Him. That's what prayer is, chatting to God and He hears you. And that is one of the means of grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ so that we might grow our relationship with him. And so, as believers, it's something we need to pursue after, it's something we need to gra- grab and grab hold of, own it, try growing it, because in it there is a growing of relationship with God. And that's awesome. But he has the thing about relationship with God it doesn't just come naturally, does it? Our Christian perspective is that man's sin hinders us from knowing God altogether. And so what God had to do, he had to send Jesus to come as a a man and live a perfect life that we could not live, die on the cross and represent us, and and our sin would be placed on him, and he would die, and three days later, he would rise again, defeating sin, and defeating death, so whoever believes in him and repents will have salvation. And then we have a relationship with God. So it cost Christ so that we might know God altogether. And a part of that knowing is prayer. We cannot approach God outside of Christ. It cost Jesus, it cost the Son of God to die so that we might pray. Isn't that incredible? And when we understand this, this is just this incredible thing that we are able to come before the living God, the God of creation, because He sent His Son to die. It's not something that is simple. It's not something that we should take lightly. But rather, it is something incredible. It is only through Christ that this is available to me. Now, I've, I think we've forgotten this because, for a number of reasons, one, we capital church, see here of church, universal church. I think we've made light of prayer. We like theology, we like cool things, but prayer, that's Sunday school stuff. Joe, move on from that. Give me something cool out of the text that will blow my mind. That will stir my spirit. But prayer, yeah, we'll get to that at some other points. I also think that we have lost the wonder of prayer because the whole world prays, don't they? Every religion pretty much prays. Every person in this room, I can guarantee at some point, whether you're Christian or not, pray to prayer. Whether it's been grace or in an assembly or in a crisis you cried out to something or before an exam that you had not studied for and you just hope that there is a God out there that will hear you and you promise to change your life if he helps you out. We have prayed at some point, but as a result, prayer has become mundane, it's become blasé, it's become boring, it's become something that we take extremely lightly. But I think if we remember what it costs to get us there, then we don't take prayer lightly. But when we forget that, then it easily becomes about us rather than about God. It's easy for me to stand up and take this wonderful gift that I've been given through the death of Christ and stand with my arms raised and pray out loud hoping that you will be impressed rather than God will hear me. Because I've taken lightly this wonderful gift that I have that I can enter into the throne, uh, throne room of God and plea before Him and have a relationship with Him. I'm shifting a bit of gears here, but I want you to notice that when Jesus talks in this passage in chapter five and six, uh, verse five and six, he's not commanding us to pray. Jesus doesn't say, you must pray. He's not uh, suggesting that you should, if you would like to, but rather in the section, Jesus assumes you will when you pray. If you are a follower of Christ, Jesus assumes that you will have a time that you pray to him. Now, the question that I have for you this evening is, do you have a set time? Have you put in your daily schedule, a time in which you will pray? Because if you haven't, you might like the idea, maybe I'll pray tomorrow when I have, but you'll probably find you get too busy and don't, or just don't do it as nearly as often as you would like to. And there's need to set in an intentional time to pray. And what this prayer might look like, well, Jesus gives us a bit of a description. He says this, um, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is secret and your father who sees in secret will, will reward you. Now, Jesus' words here aren't necessarily meant to be taken literally in terms of its practice as much as we are to glean the principle from it and apply it to our lives. So what I mean by that is that you, aren't, you don't have to find a room, close a door, and that's the only time you can have private prayer. And the, and the reason why I can be so confident in saying that is because in the very next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says these words, "'Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.'" Jesus says, "'I don't have a home. I don't have a house. I don't have a room. I don't have a door to close.'" And in our modern South African-day context, that's the reality for a lot of homes. People don't have their own homes or even their own private rooms in which they are able to close. They share, multiple people share rooms. And so I don't think you need to say, well, then I can't pray, but rather it's the principle here. And we see that with Jesus. We see it in Mark 1, verses 35. Jesus wakes up early in the morning before anybody else, and he goes out by himself and prays. We see it later on in Luke 6 where Jesus has finished a busy day's worth of ministry and it gets dark and he goes up a mountain where no one can see him and no one is with him and he prays. And that's what we need to get, gain from this. It's not necessarily the practice of finding a room and closing the door, but the principle that comes from it. And what is that principle? The principle is we need to find intentional time to pray. Intentional, deep time that is focused that is scheduled, that is enjoyed, that is looked forward to, that is experienced. That's the time that we need to pray. Now, this is different to what Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 when he says, Pray continuously. When Paul talks about pray continuously, he's talking about on your day as you do your daily routine and go about your business, you can pray. And it's this awesome act that we can do as Christians. You can be going for your runs in the morning and you can be heading out. Man, you can just pray to God about the things that are worrying you that day. You can be doing mundane things like dishes, and yet you can pray for a family member that you're concerned about. Myself and Pierre uh, can be having a conversation, and Pierre is struggling with a whole lot of stuff, and, he's, and he's, it's difficult for him, and as he's sharing his heart with me, man, I can just pray to God and say, "Lord, man, just comfort him." Oh, Lord, be there with him. May he find peace in you. Lord, be just come and solve and be a part of the solution. And he doesn't even know I'm doing it, but I can. Be praying. This is continuous prayer. And it's a wonderful, sweet thing that we as Christians need to grow in and we need to do well. But this must never, ever take place of intentional prayer. At intentional time, we must learn to do both well, not substitute one for the other. And I think a, a biblical character in Scripture that got this right and did this very well was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a, a cupbearer of a king, a king called Xerxes, And we see in Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears terrible news of his hometown Jerusalem, who has no city walls. And this is, doesn't sound really crazy to us, but back then that it was bad because people would rage you and pillage you and your constant life was always a danger. You could never grow and get a market set because every time you did well, people would come in and make sure you weren't doing well. And so Nehemiah hearing this news just burst into tears. He's broken by the fact that his hometown and, and his people are in such a state and he mourns. And what does he do? He fasts and prays for days. There's this intentional, focused time of prayer that he dives into and he prays. And the whole of chapter one, as we see in Nehemiah, it is that recording, a summary of that awesome prayer that he prayed. Now, fast forward to chapter two. Nehemiah is standing before King Artaxerxes and he is sad, which could have got him killed, but luckily it doesn't. And he's standing there before him and the king notices he's sad and says, "What? why are you so down?" And so Nehemiah starts to offload and share what's happening in Jerusalem. And after a bit of conversation takes place, the king says to him, what do you request of me? And we see in scripture, it says, and I pray to the God of heaven. What that did not look like was Nehemiah telling the king to hold his horses, quickly run off to a room by himself, close it, pray that God would help him. Get outside, run and answer the question. That did not happen. But in the moment where you're standing before the king, the strongest man in the known world at the time, and he asks you a question, Nehemiah was able to shout out a prayer to God in a continuous type prayer that the king didn't even notice. And it would have been something like, help me, or give me wisdom, or Lord, soften his heart, or let me find favor with this man. Those would have been the kinds of things Nehemiah was able to find this great balance between intentional prayer and continuous prayer. And we must never let continuous prayer replace the intentional prayer. And you might say, Joe, why? Because, and this might come out of the blue to you, but because prayer, not surprisingly, is a very spiritual thing. But also we as Christians are, as we see in Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 12, we are in a spiritual warfare. We are at war. Paul says these in, this, in, uh, this in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says we are at war as Christians spiritually. And we love this chapter particularly as Christians because it talks about the armor of God. And we love that. We've got shirts with the armor of God written on it. We like to put it on, the helmet of salvation, the blessed parade of righteousness, man. We change from the inside. We put on the belt of truth. We are people of truth. That's awesome. We've got the truth. We've got the shoes of the gospel of peace. We're ready to go out and share our faith. We've got the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. We put that all on. But now that we've got it on, what are we meant to do? What am I meant to do? I, do we just stand around? Do, do what do I do? I, I mean, I'm in a fight, but how, how do I do that? Do I just go about my day as normal? No. Scripture clearly tells us, and and the funny thing is we never read past the armor, but it goes on to tell us how we are to fight in verse 18 in chapter 6 of Ephesians. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. We are to pray. We put on the armor, and then how do we fight? We fall flat on our faces before the God of Heaven, and we cry out to Him, and we contend. We contend for our friends. We contend for our family. We contend for our church. We contend for our country, and we do so in prayer. That's what we are to do. Man, I, I know we as South Africans are sick of the evil that's happening in our country, and we are. We I nearly said the word I shouldn't. We are really over it. We really hate it, and I can see that online, and, and, and we do not want it, but my friends, we want the darkness to disappear, but it's not going to come through institutions or organizations or governments or political parties. They are not going to change, and it's going to come through when the church humbles themselves and prays. and we fight, and we contend. Now, the thing is, you cannot do that while running. Why? Because as you run along, what are you worried about? how fast you're going, how much distance you've covered, you're tired, you can't contend. You, 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 man, you can do continuous prayer that's not worried, but to really get in and focus, you can't do that while running. You can't do that while paddling. You can't do that while doing the dishes. You can't do that while driving. You can't, you need focused time to contend. And when we do that as a church, man, there will be revival that takes place. Unfortunately, it's not a physical battle. Now, sometimes I wish this evil was that we could just put on some gloves and go fighting. But it's not. And that means that we have to learn as Christians to get down on our knees in a quiet room and focus and pray because that's where change is gonna take place. And may I say to you, that doesn't mean we're not practical. Oh man, we are. Jesus just in the very section before this says, "You when you give to the needy, it's a very practical thing helping those who are struggling. So when Nicky says, it's great that you're praying, but we need help physically, the prayers are good and we must continue that, but that does not put us off the practical. But friends, it will not come if we do not pray. Prayer is vital. Now the thing is, we are at war, as I said, and we have an enemy, and like at war, there are schemes that happen, and there are strategies that take place, and, and, and our enemy, Satan, knows that prayer is powerful. And so he has come up with some great ways to stop us doing it. And one is pretty obvious that we see in this text, and we've spoken about it quite a bit, but it is making prayer about yourself. Satan knows that if he can come and whisper in your ear and say, man, they're watching. Oh, that prayer's sounding good. Everyone's impressed. Oh, don't pray. People might laugh. And he comes and makes prayer about you. And, and this might surprise us, but there is a type of prayer that God does not enjoy. That is a a prayer that is about self in terms of my glory and is everyone looking at me and hearing me. And this text clearly states that when we pray in order to be seen by others so our reputation might grow, in those moments, man, we will get our reward, and that is the praise of men, but we will not get the ear of God. He will might hear us, but he will not answer, because we were never intending for him to hear in the first place, we were intending for others to hear. And Satan makes it fully or makes, it, makes it one of his main strategies. And as a result, that is why Jesus is saying, "Go find yourself a room. Get away. Remove yourself from the temptation. Get out. Go find yourself a quiet place where no one can see and contend and focus what is right that you cannot make it about yourself. And may I say, please don't Instagram your quiet times. Hashtag quiet time with Jesus. Hashtag two hours. Don't. Please. Please don't do that. That's just a side thing, just throwing it out there. The second one is... um, That Satan makes sure that he distracts us. Anyone who's prayed, and and it's just natural, we get distracted easily, right? I had been praying recently and I was starting to pray, and I was praying out loud, so I would not get distracted. And I found myself talking about acrobats (laughs) praying about acrobats. I don't know any acrobats, but we get distracted. Um, there's something, there's a study, if you, you can look it up and, and do some research, there's a study um, that's, uh, or this thing called attention economics, where with the rise of the smartphone, and pretty much every single one of us in this room I'm sure has some form of a smartphone, when the rise of it and it became prevalent, researchers and sociologists started to get together and go, how can we get more of their attention because we only have so much of it, and so it's quite valuable. And so they started to think of ways and ideas in, so that they might get more of us onto our phones. And one of those obvious ones is notifications. You get notified by a friend that you haven't seen in five years, sharing an event, and some reason it pops up on your Facebook so that you might just go and look at it, and you never just stay there. You happen to flick through other things. But even if you, if you game, if you like to game on your phones, they've put together algorithms that know that... Say, for example, me, if I'm playing a game, they know that Joe will quit and never play this game again if he fails a level more than six times. And so they have worked it out that you will play that level and fail, 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 and as you get to the sixth time, you'll pass it. So you feel good about yourself and you carry on playing because they want more and more of your attention. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation uh, around a table with friends, and you're talking about something odd, and in a few moments later, or a couple of hours later, you saw it advertised randomly on your Facebook. Has anyone ever had that moment? I see that, Not in. Yeah, we were talking about um, the... Uh, the real common South African street dog the other day, um, and just talk. We we're talking about types of dogs and how some dogs survive more than others, and we we're just talking about how the South African street dog just survives, right? That thing is hardy, that needs, never needs medical attention, It hardly eats any food, but just survives. It's just a hardy animal. And apparently, they can be great pets as well, quite friendly and uh, just good to have around. And uh, we were chatting about that, and then I kid you not... A couple of hours later, Alyssa walks in with a Facebook going, no. They had the definition, and what it is just randomly, they are watching us. We, there's a study that's also shown that uh, most millennials uh, work at their computer with their phone in between their hands. It's just there. It's the reason why most of us wake up and the first thing we do is we have to check social media. And the, first thing we go to, the last thing we do before going to bed is seeing if there's anything new. The smartphone is designed so that we might have more of it. They've put it in like that. And now, now may I just say to you, I'm not anti-technology, I love it. I'm not very good at it, staff will tell you that. As knows that, I can't do anything, techn- techn- but I'll enjoy it. I have no problem with it, but I I want you guys to be wary and just be aware that things are vying for your attention all the time to distract you. And when it comes to our phones primarily and televisions and computers and iPads, et cetera, et cetera, those things are constantly vying for your attention. So if I had to look at this passage again and have a bit of license in rewording it, if Jesus was in the year 2019, he would say, leave your phone outside, go into your room and shut the door because our phones distract us, they call for our attention. You just have to check what that notification was, and it just throws you off course But Remove it, get rid of it. Constantly vying for our attention. Beware, beware. Um, I'm going to close, but I want to close with just one comment quickly, or just a brief comment on uh, corporate prayer. Does Jesus, when he says, pray privately, like he's talking about, is not talking about corporate prayer. No, not at all. Corporate prayer is biblical. It is good. We see it in Acts 4, verse 31. Then the disciples are praying together in a room. The room shakes. The Holy Spirit falls down. They are bold and they go out and share the gospel. It's a good thing. In, in fact, later on in uh, Matthew 6, uh, when Jesus talks about the actual Lord's Prayer, the very first of, word of it is, ow, ow. You can't pray that by yourself. That is, that is corporate And so it's good, So we're having a prayer here at church contending for the country on Tuesday at nine to 10. We're gonna be praying at the beginning of next term. We pray before every service at quarter to six. Join us, it's good. But may I say to you that your public prayer life needs to be an overflow from your private prayer life. Your public prayer life needs to be an overflow from your private prayer life. If you are praying more than you are in public, that's a sign that something's wrong. You need to be praying more at home, by yourself, with no one around. Praying behind closed doors is one of the greatest privileges that you can ever, ever experience. It's this wonderful thing between you and God. Few take the opportunity to do it. The question is, are you going to be one of those, or are you going to take hold of it?